A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage. That lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, Soul and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, April 21st. Well, we're just a few weeks away from the annual Met Gala, and of course that means there's a new exhibition to go along with it. This year's exhibition focuses on the designer, the polymath, the multitasker that was Karl Lagerfeld, who over six decades designed for Chloe, Fendi, Chanel, and of course his own label. All of these brands are featured in the latest exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum curated by Andrew Bolton. On this week's episode of the BOF podcast, Andrew sits down with our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, to give us a sneak peek into how he took the complexity, the mystery, the iconoclasm of Karl Lagerfeld and created an exhibition that is sure to be a blockbuster with fashion fans everywhere. Here's Andrew Bolton with Tim Blanks on the BOF podcast. So, Andrew Bolton, responsible for some of the greatest fashion exhibitions of our time. Your next show is about Karl Lagerfeld. It is called Line of Beauty. So let's start there with that title. Yeah, it's inspired by Hogarth's The Analysis of Beauty, his 1753 book, where he talked about the line of beauty as being the serpentine line, which he regarded as a movement that was about liveliness and was about beauty. So that's really where it began. And when I was thinking about how to do a show on Carl, you know, he, he, was just, he designed his unit for 65 years, if you count the 1954 Walmart Prize. So literally 65 years until he passed away in 2019. And how would you approach doing a retrospective of one of the most prolific designers of the 
20th and 21st century. And I knew that I didn't want to do it sort of chronologically and also buy the different houses he designed for. I didn't feel, I didn't feel that you would get a great sense of his designs. And I, I knew I didn't want it to be about him, like Cole the man. I wanted it to be about Cole the work. So less his words, more the work. So Cole the designer. And I came up with the idea at the memorial service. Did you go to that, Tim? Yes. In the Grand Palais, yeah. which was, you know, a little bit dispassionate in a way. Yes, it was so huge. It was How so huge. It, it was hard to really feel anything. But the one moment I did feel something was when the videos that I believe Loic Prigent did of the premiers talking about Carl and obviously seeing Carl sketch. And I sort of felt, oh my gosh, there were such formative relationships in his life. You know, obviously he had so many people who would come and go, but these were lasting relationships that were so close to him. So the, I knew I wanted the show to be focusing on him and his relationship with the premiers. And then the more I sort of delved into it, the more interesting it became in terms of his creative process. So that in a way, the, the show's ended up to be a very censored, focused essay on his creative process, his sketching. So structuring it, I like the idea of having these two lines. You know, his drawings are all about the curved line and the straight line. That's basically what he's drawings are, it's just those two main lines. So I wanted to conceptualise, physically realise those lines in his work in the exhibition. Well, you know, your shows at the Met have always been cultural bellwethers. I'm curious, why Carl, why now? You're describing actually something there which is very interesting. It sounds like you were creating this infinite order, or nearly infinite order, and it's sort of interesting because the world is so chaotic at the moment. And it's interesting to do a show which is literally linear, a museum show which everybody is going to look at for some kind of direction at a time when all around us is just chaos and confusion. Is there any connection? you think it's a subliminal or otherwise? I think the main thing that I feel is one of Carl's greatest legacies was the sort of creating the blueprint for the modern day fashion designer empresario in a way, obviously way before Kanye, way before Shane Oliver, he was somebody who didn't restrict his creativity down to one outlet. He was an interior designer, he was a photographer, he was a writer, he was a theatrical designer as well as a designer. So one of his lasting legacies was how, and I think very few designers will surpass this, is how, as well as creating this, this blueprint for the polymath designer who had different outlets for his creativity, I found that really fascinating about him that other designers have followed that model, obviously, like Virgil. But he was one who sort of lived it and began it. And I think that designers now aspire to that way of working, being somebody who doesn't restrict their creativity down to one outlet. There's numerous outlets and great designers are aspiring to that model of working now. And Carl was the one who created it and engineered it. But that's interesting. It's unlikely that we'll ever see his like again. So the timing of the show, do you see that almost as marking the end of an era? You talk about him being a model for designers, that every designer would love to have that kind of freedom to explore every kind of wrinkle and warp of their creativity. You know, the set of circumstances that conspired to make him Karl Lagerfeld will never really come together again. So do you see it as a end of an era, or do you see it as a sort of benchmark for the beginning of a new era? I think both. I think that, as you say, you know, Carl had so many boundaries in his head, which I think allowed him to transgress those boundaries in, in life. For me, his greatest disguise was 
the black and white uniform he created because it, it deflected away from anything. It was his greatest duplicity. It was creating this sort of what he called the dolly or the puppet that became this sort of image that people were obsessed with. You know, I found that fascinating about him, and which is one of the reasons why I didn't really want to focus in the exhibition on him, the man, and the words, because I feel as if that's not authentic. What is authentic and what is true to him is the work. So I'm hoping that when you walk through the show and you're forced to look at the work and you're forced to look at these dualities that he presented in his cell and try to reconcile, you find out more about him than any of his sentences or any of his self-presentation. It's the work that speaks and says more about him than any of his aphorisms and maxims. Now I've absorbed the idea of the line and the dualities and the chambers and the... What are these dualities that you're isolating or celebrating in the exhibition? There's nine in total, and it's the, they're basically themes that would recur in Carl's work at Chanel, at Fendi, at Chloe, in his own labels. So it's the idea of the masculine feminine, romantic and military, the Rococo and the classical, the salon on the street, the high and low is one, historical and futuristic, um, figurative and abstract floral and geometric. So they're basically recurring themes in his work that are presented in the exhibition as these dualities. And centering the duality is what we call an ex literally an explosion, a garment that's placed on a pedestal. That's a sort of moment of convergence that is a garment that tries to reconcile those dualities. So as you walk through the show, you have these nine, in a way, totems that are these garments that reconcile the sort of conflicting aesthetics and conflicting philosophies of those two dualities. With, with Carl, he, he saw the world in black and white, or he, at least he said he did, hence his uniform, and that he didn't see things in grey. But these are the moments of greyness throughout the black and white world that Carl saw. But it's going to be lushly visual. <laughs> I mean, it's not really going to be a, a sort of, you know, when you're walking through, you are going to be surrounded, enveloped in, in gorgeous, creative outpourings, when you're talking about some of those dualities, they do sound intensely visual and, and seductive. And, and we tried to arrange with Tado. Tado designed a house for Carl at one point, but never got built. So in a way, this is like Tado's temple to Carl. It's like, it's like, it's like Tado, Tado Ando does temples. That's what he designs. That's modern. I think it's just outside Osaka and it's maybe the Church of the Light, I think it's called. And it's just this concrete block and the only light you see is a crucifix. It's just extraordinary. We actually start off the show with a similar thing with the caduceus, um, the symbol that I think reflects the S line and the straight line. So the straight line and the S line was a symbol for Mercury. He was a god of commerce and communication. So I've created that as a symbol for the exhibition, but also a symbol for Carl, who was the modern day god of commerce and communication. So you walk into the show and you see this light this sign, Scaduceus, that uh, is lit up, um, very similar to um, Tado's Church of the Light. That's the symbol that confronts you when you first walk in the show. I always thought of Lagerfeld as a little bit of a libertine in the sense that there was this incredibly rigorous thought attached to this, I don't know, was he a sensualist? I mean, I sort of feel like there had to have been, yes, he loved things, but at the same time there was this, as you said, black and white. You know, he would collect passionately and then spew it out. So the 18th century, Memphis, Art Deco, he would collect it and become an expert in this field and voraciously consume it. But then he would just purge and create something new. And like, what was that about? You know, what, what was that about? 
I mean, you think of Elton John as somebody who has a similar reputation for collecting on an imperial scale. I don't know if he dispenses with his collections quite the way Carl used to, but that was a fascinating thing about him. He would buy, Carl would buy the best of everything in one genre and then get rid of it and buy the best of everything else in some other genre. What have you learned about him? Uh, as you, you say, this isn't about him, the man. This isn't about him, the I think the what I've learned about is how nostalgic and sentimental he was. You know, he always says, I, I look forward, I don't look to the past. And maybe that part of the idea of collecting and then regurgitating and starting anew was this idea of constantly like a snake shedding his skin, was just reinventing himself and going on to the next stage of his life. But I found him to be very sentimental and very nostalgic. And some collections are more sentimental than others. You, know, you think about the Hamburg collection, the Metier collection that he did, and the one that was in the forest with the Mahler music. It, he kept this letter that he wrote to his mum in 1954, this 10-page letter, and he kept it. Maybe his mother kept it and he inherited it, I don't know. But the painting, the Menzel painting, that he's forced his parents to buy when he was seven years old in an antique store for Christmas. He made his parents go to the antique store and ask the owner to open it up and so he could buy the men's cell. That was in his room his entire life. I heard he had a room set up in his house that was his bedroom from when he was a child with all the furniture. Yeah, more of the BDMI furniture. It wasn't exact, but it was sort of like an approximation of his childhood. So it's so interesting that he was such a you know, paradox. And for somebody who loved history so much, and consumed history, he could not not look back. And you see recurring motifs in his work, and part of the exhibition looks at those recurring motifs and looks at those recurring themes that we return to again and again and again and again. Sometimes the same garment, you know, there's that famous sort of pannier garment that he did for Chanel early on in one of the 80s collections. And he did the exact same collection in the Metier collection, where he, it was the sort of like Tricks of Hazard collection, which was the American collection. And, the, and he inverted the black and the white of the original one. So, Maybe it was, it was subliminal, he didn't maybe not realise it, but he did revisit ideas and themes. You know, um, the art critic Robert Hughes once said that the flip side of sentimentality was viciousness. You, when you're talking about Carl being sentimental there, and obviously there are loads of stories to support the notion that he could also be quite vicious. I know, I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to focus on the work, <laughs> rather than the words or the man. Because, you know, yeah, he was problematic. There was, you know, he, there was things he said that were, yeah, difficult. And again, did he mean it? Or was it something, was it a deflection? I don't know, it's hard to know. But it's like Chanel, he would reinvent himself so many times. What is the truth? Trying to separate fact from fiction. I didn't want to get into that rabbit hole of trying to sort of, you know, what was truthful about Carl's life and what wasn't. And I thought the one thing that was authentic, the one thing that was real and tangible was his output, his creative output. So by focusing on his works, by focusing on his creativity, by focusing on his creative output and how he communicated with his premieres, it's this pure, undiluted relationship. How is it doing a show where there are so many people who knew him so well. For example, Anna Winter was a very good friend of his. So what do they bring to your curation of a show like this? I was very blinkered. I've tried so hard just to be pure in terms of what the vision of the show is. And in, in, in the um, book, there's essays by Amanda and an essay by Anna and Tado, who also had a personal relationship with him. And Patrick Urquhart, who wrote the book, you know, No Regrets. I wanted that to be their relationship and their voice so that they had these very specific relationships with Carl and they're illuminating. But I didn't want that to be, sort of infiltrate the thesis of the exhibition so much. The people we did interview though were the premieres. 
So they have a big voice in the exhibition and there's a whole room dedicated to the premieres and talking about Carl's working methodology, but also talking about their relationships with Carl himself. So there was a very real close relationship between the premieres and Carl. So I started off the exhibition with, again, no image of Carl. I didn't want there to be any image of Carl until you get to right at the very end. So when you walk into the first gallery, there's just a very large screen of Carl drawing. That really quick way, like a, like a modernist brushstroke on paper. Really quick way. And, it's, and it charts his career from the Walmart Prize, Balmain, Patu, Fendi, Chloe, Chanel and his own label. And not, not H&M, but they're in the show. With his desk. So you, you see the desk that he would draw on. You see all of it. He had four desks in his flat in Paris. One was for drawing, one was for writing personal letters, one was for writing business letters, and one was for paying invoices. So you, you structure sort of his brain, so to speak, or the sort of area that he would work. And then you get into the premiere section where you focus on these pure relationships between Carl's creative and how they would actually translate his drawings, his two-dimensional drawings into three-dimensional garments, and how these drawings, which were a cross between a technical drawing and an expressionistic fashion illustration, how would they would decode and decipher these drawings and realize his vision. And it's just really moving hearing them talk about him and talking about how he would operate across all four labels. And then you don't really see Carl until right at the very end. And we've created this large elliptical structure. And inside, there's going to be an, another explosion pedestal and on, on it will be a small, we're not quite sure yet, it's going to be an iPhone or an iPad. And it's actually a video of Carl, that was an outtake that um, Loic filmed of him where he got his French, German and English all confused and he was laughing so hard like a little boy. He was hitting his thighs, he was stamping his feet, he was just laughing hysterically like, like, like an uncontrollable and it's so charming and I want to produce it like literally this big so it's a tiny little tiny little sort of image of Carl in this vast room of him just laughing. That's the only image you get, you get to see of Carl in the whole exhibition. Which is quite audacious on your part in the course of the shows that you've done. And I, I think especially of, of the McQueen show, I remember queuing in Central Park where the queue went all the way out into the park. And there were, I was standing with some people from Honolulu, a middle-aged couple who'd come from Honolulu. They didn't know Alexander McQueen, but they'd heard they had to see this show. And the emotional connection that that show made with people who knew nothing about fashion. Lagerfeld seems a lot more forbidding. There is no tragedy. There's not that hook of doomed youth or beauty, or there just seems to be this really prodigious person who worked an entire long, full life. What's the emotional tug of this show? I think it's a mystery of Carl. I think it's the fact that he developed this armor, this uniform to protect what? What was he protecting? So it's more the mystery behind the man and the sort of loneliness of that character. I mean, all caricatures are sort of lonely people because they create an image of themselves that consumes their being. I was reading one of the biographies where they talk about how gay men of a particular generation, particularly somebody who grew up in Germany when he did. And that was fascinating too. You, the fact that people always felt he lied about his age because he wanted to be more youthful. I think he lied about his age because he didn't want to remember or be associated with that part of Germany's history. So by having his life five years later, it creates a very different experience. Like exonerates him or something? Or places outside of that experience. So 
this one biographer talks about how he interviewed a psychoanalyst and, and how gay men of a particular generation, and I think even like from our generation, you know, who would re reinvent themselves as a way of hiding feelings, hiding any sort of notion or identity that could be up for criticism. And so, you know, and I said, is that, is that part of the uniform? Like, you know, this, because it went through different stages. One part of the show where Lyric very, very cleverly throughout filming him asked him to draw himself through different stages of his life, starting when he was a small child in Germany. And we end the show with that. We end with Carl drawing himself, drawing his, his images and the transformations that he went through, the fan and obviously the final transformation, which was the, the ultimate puppet and dolly that he's called himself. So I think that the allure of the show, apart from his incredible creativity, is who was this man? With Lee, I always felt his clothes were confessional. They were his own psychoanalysis. They allowed him to exercise and to experience some of the feelings he was feeling. Was Carl doing the same or was it more protection? Was it, again, trying to hide who he was by this prolific, relentless output that never, ever stopped? We'll be right back with more on the BOF Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. 
The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. He absolutely defied you to find some kind of moment of revelation or something, or to find some, if there was some really extravagant, emotional, tear-jerking moment in a show, and, and you'd bring it up and he'd be like, you know, well, you can say that. You, you say that. And he's already thinking about whatever the next collection he's going to do. This is, this is what I was going to say before, actually. With all those people contributing to the book, and all the people you've spoken to, do you feel he showed a different face to each of them? Do, do you feel that like each of them knew a different Carl? Or was there one Carl that they all, this mystery? <laughs> was he nice Carl? Was he nasty Carl? Was he, did he choose what he showed of himself to different people? It's been pretty consistent, I think, the people I've spoken to in terms of how their relationship with Carl, I think he probably had different relationships with them for different reasons. So I think that, you know, he had a different relationship from Amanda than Anna and Anna Piaggi, obviously Jacques. But there's a consistency of rhetoric around Carl, I feel. The one thing that I think they focus on is the gentleness behind Carl. And I remember when I first saw Carl without his sunglasses, which I'm sure you've seen, his eyes were shocking. They shocked you because there was a vulnerability to his eyes that I found so shocking. And there was one quote I came across. Again, he often says great truisms when he's on the defensive or he gets annoyed with an interviewer and somebody asks him about his sunglasses. And he says, well, why would I put my eyes on the marketplace? Everything else is on the marketplace. My eyes are for my, for my own private consumption. And one of the few places that he would take his glasses off would when he'd be at home sketching. But it was this immense vulnerability that I saw in his eyes when he took his sunglasses off. Obviously, this great act of kindness that you people have, have always talked about. And that moment of him laughing at the end, this little boy, unguarded, moment of hysteria. He's like a little boy again, like at the age of eight, seven or eight. So interesting. You know, it's funny when he talked about Hudson Kroenig, the little boy who he kind of almost adopted. And when he talked about his cat, Choupette, towards the end, when he talked about finding this love at the end of his life, Giorgio Armani said almost exactly the same thing to me, also about a child that he'd taken under his wing, and also about his cat, or cats, one of them had died. And, and I suppose it's almost a cliche that at the end of the life, that life, that huge life that he led, he is alone and unhappy. He was always alone. I, I'm not yes, sure if he was unhappy. Yeah. I think he was always alone. You read about in the Warhol times, you know, he would go after a particular moment in time, he would go back to his house on his own. So he was always alone, I think. And that's what I think his work, which is greatest consolation, he could control it. It was something that was just his. It was, you know, partly about control. I mean, that's when you see, when you see him drawing, there's this sort of passion. The witty Carl and the satirical Carl is gone. It's a little boy again, drawing in his bedroom, reading Simplicimus, you know, that, that satirical magazine he loves so much. And 
He was saying about how when he grew up, he wanted to be a caricaturist, and isn't it ironic that I've become a caricature? The experience of him as a child, growing up in Germany at that particular moment in time, I think it was fundamental. Will people walk away from the show? You haven't focused on Karl Lehmann, but do you think they will walk away with a sense of his sadness or his... I hope they get a sense of, obviously, his creativity and his creative output for so many years and the contradictions in him. Structuring the show around these dualities was partly to also present him as a contradictory, paradoxical person. Oddly enough, it ends with his words and it ends with his image. I didn't want to start off with that because I didn't feel that was the true Carl, but I wanted to end with it because it's what people realise. So the, the satirical line is garments that show his wit, razor sharp wit, through trompe l'oeil and through visual puns. Chloe and the work he did at Carl, mainly at KL. There's also 10 garments that are representation of his uniform. You know, at Chanel and at Carl Lagold in particular, he would put himself, he was like Hitchcock, he would put himself in the collections. There was always one look, invariably a look, that was Carl on the runway. So I end with 10 garments, including the Carlito token that he made. But at the very end is garments he actually wore, but fragmented. So the garments that became his uniform, the sunglasses, the chrome hearts rings, the high neck collar, um, the black, jacket. So garments that individually represent him. So you see the shirt and you see Carl, you see the glasses, you see Carl, the glove, you see Carl, but it's fragmented. They're all sort of, it's a fragmented individual. So he's, he's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. So you end with this jigsaw puzzle that I hope invites the audience to sort of put together as a whole. That's how it ends. It was an interesting show to work on though, because as you say, what is new to say about Carl? I, you know, so much has been said about him over the years and there's so many different directions you could have gone in. You could have structured it chronologically. Maybe that would have been the more appealing show for people if it was just chronological and in the design houses that he worked in. I didn't feel that would reveal too much about his creativity, though. I think it's, we, all, we sort of all know that. How many outfits did you look at over the course of the curation? 5,000. 5, did you get a sense when you were looking at them that out of all the gun for hire rigmarole that he was always so loquacious about, you know, what did he call? Like he called himself, I'm a worker or something. Yeah, he, working class. Working class, yes. Did you get a sense that there was one thing that was closest to him? I mean, obviously, when you look at KL, when he first launched KL, and it was so Vienna, it was so secession, Very you know, the Wiener Werkstätte, the, the linear, the black and white, it, it, that felt quite close to maybe what he was. Mm. But did you find anything else in there that you thought was the truest expression of his own aesthetic, I mean. I think he was basically the two lines, the straight line, which is his modernist and his minimalist tendencies and the S line. It's also the Teutonic and the French line too. And I feel that was something he was always trying to reconcile was this Germanness, this inherent Teutonic Germanness in him and the aspiration to be French and what that entails from a young age. And his mother said, you should leave, everyone should come to Germany and everyone should experience Paris and France. There was always this contradiction of Karl, the Teutonic, the Teutonic side, and the aspirations for this French culture and cultivation. And I think that's what he ultimately tries to reconcile in his work. That's what I think. And then the reconciliation is also interesting because you said you've dissected his avatar at the end, the gloves, the rings, the stiff collars, whatever where he looked so old-fashioned. 
but he was so Mr. iPad, Mr. iPod. I mean, so abreast of everything, he, buying every record. But at the same time, when he talked about things, he was reading, I don't know, Schiller, yeah. the poems of Schiller and listening to Mendelssohn or something. And I feel that's also an expression of his largesse. And I do think there was something very magnanimous about Carl. But I do think that there's a generosity of spirit about Carl or intellect that is what comes across in his work. The fact that, you know, he would get inspired by China, Japan, but also ancient Greece and Rome. And the inspirations came from everywhere and sometimes unfiltered, sometimes filtered. But part of that was about this generosity behind him. So none of the psychic vampire. You know, Amanda talks a lot about, you know, the vampiric qualities of Carl. One of the good things about working on the exhibition is I knew, you know, we have dinners once in a while, but I didn't know him. Uh, as in, I didn't know him like Amanda or Anna did. And so that's very freeing to work on an exhibition. And so it's like with the McQueen show, I think I met McQueen t twice in very sort of formal occasions before the exhibition, during the exhibition. But Carl was very different. You know, as you, as you said earlier, you know, the reason why people responded to that exhibition was that McQueen was like a shaman. He was able to evoke these emotions out of you. The work, it was pure emotion. I mean, you remember going to the shows, they were extraordinary. And I don't think there's been any other designer who's able to sort of evoke and evince those emotions from somebody before or afterwards. Well, make, make fashion something atavistic, which it kind of is. Yeah. And Lagerfeld so steadfastly resisted that kind of depth. He just stayed skittering along the surface at top speed. Completely. But that was also, I think, part of this complete fear of what he had inside him, whatever that was inside him. There was a fear there. Inner darkness, shall we say? Do you feel that you've done this show now, the linear show, the, the nine dualities, and wow, I can't, I can't wait. Is there another show to be done about the rest of it? A sort of chamber, a chamber show, you know, like a... That's like the McQueen show. The McQueen show was just an essay. Partly it's because I just don't have time to do a, compre a comprehensive exhibition. When we do these shows, I did this whole show in five months, basically, put everything together in five months after the American show opened. So partly it's that, and partly I love approaching exhibitions like essays, and it's just an essay. And I always think somebody else would do the comprehensive show so when we did the McQueen show, I was hoping the V&A or somebody else would do a different show. It would be a show that was focusing on his art collection and how his art collection he used as part of his inspiration. Something different, a different angle, because my angle was just the idea of the sublime and about how Lee channeled the sublime in his work and his, through his collections and through his shows. And this one's just about the idea of the line of the sketching. It's really about his creative process. So it's just an essay. There's so I hope somebody does something much more meatier <laughs> after this. But, but I think your shows have a habit of sort of being so definitive about this subject. Everybody else is too intimidated to approach the subject again. But this raises another interesting point. We were talking to Bailey Walsh on the podcast a few weeks ago about ABBA Voyage Amazing. and living in an age of spectacle. What does a museum exhibition need to do now to galvanize the millions? You know, it's so funny you should ask that, because I'm trying to do the opposite. My interest is now the opposite, in a way, because I feel as if when we did the McQueen show, which I suppose was seen as a blockbuster, we didn't set out to do a blockbuster. We had no idea it was going to have that resonance. We had no idea he wasn't a household name in America. We had no idea. It was, and we, as you knew through the lines, we were so ill-prepared. Those lines, poor people, we were so ill-prepared for it. 
So you don't, you never set out to do that. And even the subject matter, you try to choose a subject that will resonate with people and that you hope it will somehow reflect the zeitgeist in some way, in shape or form, or the themes you're approaching in the exhibition relates somehow. You know, I think that people make shows, visitors make shows successful or not. You know, the puncture I did was a flop because I think it, people just didn't relate to it. You know, punks hated it because they felt as if even the show was called Chaos to Couture. It wasn't about punk. It was about the influence. But you know, punks thought that, you know, it was just a, a travesty. So I think that, you know, it's visitors who make shows successful. It's how they respond to it. And if something relates to them or is it, if, if it just resonates, that's what makes a show successful, not anything else. It's just visitors respond to it in, one, in any shape or form, then it's successful. If they don't, it's a flop. <laughs> it's well, a failure, no matter how much work you put into it. Let's see if Carl strikes a chord. No, I hope so. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Tim. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.